Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership, but look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm James Walcott. Caroline, I've been thinking a lot about some deep ethical questions. Uh, Do you think superheroes are people? Superheroes? Yeah, Thor's Marvel, Batman. Uh, Are they human beings? I really hope Superwoman is real. I'd I'd like a go at the lasso. Lasso, if you're American. But then also, like, is it because they're real because they've now been played by actors? Uh Uh-huh. Where's this going? (laughs) Well... I saw recently in the financial press uh, that HMRC have taken Star Images, a toy developer, to court. And it all comes down to, in the UK, there's a tax bracket for non-human creatures that is a 0% duty. But for human toys, it carries a charge of nearly 5%. Oh. So the toy company is trying to argue, uh, no, Thor is uh, not a person and neither is Batman. He's a god, isn't he? Yes. Demigod. Well, exactly. <laughs> Batman, he's, he's a billionaire. <laughs> and possibly Superwoman. I don't know if she's in the suit. Now, to me, this is a big reminder as we head into election year deep down people do not want to pay tax if they can possibly (laughs) avoid it yeah look everything comes down to taxes in life surely doesn't it the old adage goes no look it is interesting um jeremy hunt speaking to bloomberg not that long ago at davos did pretty cautiously of course tell us that he is hoping to make further tax cut announcements after the 10 billion pound national insurance cut in the autumn statement there is a lot of pressure given the polling uh, for a tax cuts or for something from the government to entice voters uh, interestingly also though a very ferocious pushback about whether more tax cuts can actually be delivered in the upcoming March budget. But yes, and if you're not going to pay your taxes, are you going to get your toys? I mean, the <laughs> Institute for Fiscal Studies, along with the usual call for the government to sort of be honest about the country's fiscal position with voters, they are warning that in the numbers there is this alarming issue. The UK is going to face the worst fiscal inheritance for the next government in 70 years. High interest rates, feeble UK growth mean that the democratic election is going to be about massive trade-offs. What does the state do? How is Britain going to pay for it and it means that Labour face big questions about any tax rises they may or may not make but also the government and the Conservative Party need to make some Mm. detailed decisions about what government spending decisions are going to be cut back to make room for any planned tax cuts Mm. as we heard from the OBI yesterday any sort of government plans for spending beyond 2025 are simply not a reality. He called them fiction, didn't he, the chair, and Richard Hughes? Yeah, absolutely. He said not even fiction because fiction needs somebody to actually write it. And he said that the government hasn't put pen to paper on the, on the issue. Um, look, is this more than just pre-election, the think tank sort of uh, having a go at, at government and, and the opposition party to uh, be more honest and open? Uh, is it more than that? This is what we really want to, to understand. I mean, certainly the topic seems pretty fraught right now. 
Joining us now to discuss those findings is Carl Emerson, Deputy Director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who were behind that report. Carl, we've been here before. Governments are often very vague about how their policies will be funded. Does it matter more this time round? I think it'd always be good if um, those seeking um, office were honest about the trade-offs they face and gave us a really good sense of how they would tackle them. What we're saying is different this time is that for predictable reasons, we know that the next parliament um, is going to be, in economics terms, a very, very difficult one to navigate, essentially because it doesn't look very easy for the government in the terms of we have a high and rising tax burden by UK standards. We have commitments to have debt falling, and yet it's very difficult to get debt down in a world where you've accumulated lots of debt. It's expensive to finance with higher interest rates, and you've got a weak outlook for growth. And we've got lots of public services that seem to be struggling. So I think getting those, getting clarity about those trade-offs is potentially more important given the economic context that we know that we're in. OK, so given all of that, do you think that that means that we are in for another significant round of austerity in Britain after 2025? Well, the government's plans, which they've published, um, show them getting debt down at the end of the forecast horizon, but only just... So that's a pretty loose fiscal target. It says we want debt falling, but only between years four and five of our forecast horizon. So a fairly loose fiscal target only just being met. And yet to meet that, they've got a tax burden which keeps rising over the next few years with freezes in pretty much every threshold in the personal tax system. So perhaps bad news on the tax front coming. Um, And then on the spending side, the the plans imply some growth in day-to-day spending on public services overall. But once you take out what we think will likely go to the NHS, what we think will likely go to defence, overseas aid, schools, plus the fact the Chancellor's pre-committed a load of money to fund a big increase in childcare, it looks like pretty big cuts elsewhere. So we think something of the order of £20 billion needed to be found from day-to-day spending in areas like justice, the Home Office, local government services, many of the parts of the public sector which had pretty big cuts through the 2010s and is certainly a big turnaround from where we were pre-pandemic when Boris Johnson was announcing the end of austerity and every department not seeing cuts in their budgets. Well, I mean, the OBR's chair, Richard Hughes, was scathing earlier this week, Carly, especially for an independent forecaster, saying that government long-term spending plans were worse than fiction. With that in mind, what you've just said, do we need to have a rethink about how do we hold the government of the day accountable for balancing the books? I think there is a, a rather poor combination at the moment where we have this fiscal target, which is really kicking in between years four and five of the forecast. So for good reasons, we have a forward-looking fiscal target. We're looking into the future and saying, what do we think the public finances will be like? But that's interacting with the fact that we don't have any detail on the spending plans for that period. And therefore, if a government wanted to, it can just pencil in spending plans, which it doesn't have any intention of keeping to. And that would make it look like it was on course to have debt coming down. Now, to be fair to the government, they have delivered yeah, we have delivered spending cuts in the past, in the 2010s. Um, but in some sense, that makes it even harder to deliver spending cuts now. Um, but I do think we probably do need a bit of a rethink in terms of your question about if we're going to have these forward-looking fiscal targets, maybe we do need to demand more clarity about where how spending plans will add up. And yes, tax cuts are great. There's nothing wrong with having them. But perhaps we should hold off announcing them until we've identified where the money to pay for them will come from. To what extent, um, and I'll put the kind of bold accusation 
out there that seems to be floating around the idea that the government is focused on tax cuts now and poisoning the well, as it were, for the potentially incoming Labour government. What would you respond to that? Do you see signs of that here? Well, I think it's pretty clear that whoever is Chancellor after the next election is going to be dealt a pretty tricky um, hand. Um, I think that would be true even if we don't get tax cuts in the forthcoming budget um, at the start of March. Um, we've got plans which are, as I say, predicated on spending cuts in some areas. Uh, the Labour opposition, their policies in terms of day-to-day -day spending and in terms of tax policy aren't that different from the government's. So there's a modest, a very modest increase in tax that they've told us about so far funding what would be a pretty modest top up to those spending plans. And even if you look at the investment plans that Labour has set forward, where they've got this much uh, talked about big boost in investing on, on green activities, even if they were to implement that, it would still imply investment spending as a share of national income falling over the next parliament. So I think what I would say here is that you know, whoever's chancellor after the election, if it's Jeremy Hunt, if it's Rachel Reeves or someone else, they are going to have a very difficult time. In the report, Carl, you talk about the creaking public infrastructure in the UK. I know you don't know what cuts the hypothetical governments intend to make, but what would be worse for growth, in your view, cuts to government spending and infrastructure or tax rises? I think a lot of it then comes down to the detail. There are there's certainly, you know, tax rises are not nice to have and they can do harm to your economy. And actually, our tax system is in a pretty bad shape in that all of our taxes could probably be reformed and be made to work better. That means that if you are going to go down the road of saying we need higher taxes to pay for an ageing population and better public services, what you need to do is reform those taxes before putting them up. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, actually, you know, we have a choice here between do we damage our economy by cutting spending or do we damage our economy by putting up taxes? We do have options here. We could choose to reform our taxes. We could choose to look carefully at the balance of spending and try and make sure that it's as pro-growth as possible. Um, but of course, there's reasons why politicians have shied away from some of the difficult trade-offs that that entails in the past. And it's not clear we will make those trade-offs um, in the future. Um, a stark north-south divide across the UK, massive public debt issues, as you've uh, just alluded to. Uh, is Britain actually more like Italy? Well, one of the issues is that we've had really, I mean, many economies have had a slowdown in their growth since around 2007, 2008. We've seen that across many advanced economies. But the UK has certainly had its dose of uh, weak growth over that period. Um, and that's had big consequences, both for terms of uh, the amount of earnings that working households are getting. Earnings growth has been truly abysmal over that period, um, very extended period now. And it's also had really bad consequences for the public finances. So it's pretty clear that better growth going forwards would be one way of easing all of these trade-offs. Um, but we don't want to just wish for better growth. If we're serious about it, we need relentless um, focus on growth right across the board. It's not just about cutting one tax or another tax. It's about genuine reform of taxes. It's about competition policy, trade policy, um, getting policies right across the board, really focused on growth, and then being patient because sustained growth, it does take time to reap the rewards from that. You talk about policy there, Carl. I mean, we're about to head into a general election campaign. This is the first of one of the IFS's many reports looking at the election. Do you think you've seen anywhere near enough detail on policy from either party to give a good outlook of what their governments intend to do? 
not yet of course to be fair there may well be several months between now and the next election um both the conservatives and the labor party may be waiting for an updated set of forecasts from the obr for example to see what what position they might inherit to get the best data on that um so it's early days and i think we don't necessarily need really 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 detailed plans what we need is a sense of look there are trade-offs here there are trade-offs between uh, planning laws and growth. There's trade-offs between you know, how we feel about immigration and what we what we might be doing in our social care sector or our higher education sector. Um, there's trade-offs on how much we want to be investing on green activities, which will deliver potentially very good returns in the longer run, but certainly will require big sacrifices in the near term. I think what we want from uh, all of those seeking office um, is a sense of how they will tackle um, those trade-offs. To what extent do they want to focus on you know, day-to-day -day spending now, to what extent they want to focus on getting debt down, to what extent do they want to focus on investments for the future that, as I say, won't reap rewards in the short run, but may be better for us in the longer term. Carl, thank you so much for being with us. Carl Emerson is Deputy Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, joining us on their latest report. Well, that certainly gives us food for thought, doesn't it, for the next few months? Britain in a very difficult economic situation. The IFS calling for whichever government comes in to be honest with the trade-offs that we face. This morning, Bloomberg spoke to the Economic Secretary to the Treasury and City Minister Bim Afolami about proposals for a new intermittent trading venue aimed at privately owned companies. Here's what he had to say about the plans. What we've seen across the world is, over the last five to ten years, a gradual structural shift towards more, more private capital, away from uh, public capital markets. That's happening in every single country, in every single jurisdiction. The prize is to see if we can marry up that trend with our world-beating capital markets. We've seen private markets really growing, of course, um, and there's some concern in some places that we lack oversight and transparency of what's going on in private markets. So is this aimed at addressing that? The point about private markets is they are that. They are private. You mm. don't have the same obligations that you do as a public company, and we're not, you know, not going to change that. I think that the point you make about transparency is an important one because it's really about seeing the decisions that government can take that helps the broader economy, the more visibility one has about what's happening in private markets, obviously that helps the government make its own decisions. So to that extent, transparency is always a good thing. And if those private companies are able to access public markets in a controlled way, now look, it's important to say, you know, the regulators are very involved with how we're going to do this. We're not there yet. But if we can get this right, the prize, I think, for London is significant. So that was Bim Afalami there speaking to Bloomberg TV anchors Anna Edwards and Tom McKenzie just this morning. So this plan to create uh, the new platform that's going to be called Pisces is going to allow investors in private companies to trade shares. Um, joining us now to discuss this, what it means for business and for investors and for London, Tony Dalwood, who is CEO of Gresham House, a specialist alternative asset manager in the city of London. Very good to have you with us on the programme, Tony. Um I think for the perhaps political audience listening to this podcast, they might hear the words world beating capital markets and be quite impressed. The problem is that London has been in the absolute doldrums for the last couple of years, you know, desperately in need of help and support, one many might say. Do you think that this new trading platform is going to change that, is really going to improve things for London? I think it's important to get perspective here. 
and and look at the fact that the culture of the UK over history has been one of being at the forefront of capital markets, as Bim Afalami mentioned. And I think it's important to recognise that because over the last few years, there's been a lot of mud thrown at the UK market. But the culture within the UK, historically, and this is the key component, is it going to be this going forward? Because if the culture is one of being an entrepreneur, being risk takers, being managed uh, risk takers for capital, for people that want to invest, this is where London has been for the last one to 200 years or even longer, at the centre of trade, finance, international, uh, internationalisation, technology provision, for, and that requires capital. And what we've seen in the last few years, the London market, particularly focused on the listed markets, has been secondary, I would say, to the fact that we have, uh, have lost out to, particularly the US, but arguably um, uh, increasingly some of the other markets that have been behind us uh, in continental Europe over the last few years. Now, I, I believe, firmly believe in this, this country has the opportunity again to go forward. Um, and the asset allocation, and this is what Bim Afalami was mentioning, is that the asset allocation of private markets over the last 10 to 15 years has gone from a very low number, arguably zero. If you go back 20 years, private equity was uh, an average of zero allocation. In the last 10 years, you've seen things like infrastructure, um, um, renewables, um, and, and all other sorts of in forestry, uh, all sorts of other illiquid and private markets come onto the agenda and be part of asset allocation, which is now on average up to between 30 and 50 percent of portfolio construction. And as a result of that, you're seeing the UK being, again, the opportunity to be at the forefront of that. We are at the forefront of that asset allocation. But how do we maintain that? And one of the ways of doing that is to look at new ways of creating liquidity and transparency, which is what the London Stock Exchange was 100 years ago and at the mm. forefront of that globally. And that what they're trying to do here, quite right, is to say, well, look, now the asset allocation to these private markets is catching up. How do we create and provide liquidity to stay at the mm. head of those markets in order to then attract more capital into this country and companies that want to be in this country? Um, and that is what the objective here is. And it is a very, very important objective. And it's mm. one that should be applauded. Tony, I mean, you said that's the objective. We were listening to UK finance ministers at Davos last week, and they were saying they wanted to make the UK the Nasdaq in Europe. Do you think that's possible? And how would Britain get there? Look, everything's possible in this world. We have historically been, again, as I keep saying, right, right, right up there in number one, number two in terms of trading of cap forefront of capital markets. In some areas, we're still you know, number one, whether it be in, in lights of currency or, or otherwise. So we have that ability. But what's important is not to get burdened down in looking backwards and, and for innovation and a culture uh, of allowing capital markets to thrive. And yes, regulation has its per place, but over-regulation, which a lot of people will talk about, leads to capital being diverted into other areas. And that is when capital starts thinking, I don't really necessarily want to be in this area. And liquidity falls away. And liquidity falling away then has a self-vicious circle downwards in, in terms of, of, of effect. Mm. So can we get to the uh, back up to um, the, the opportunity? Absolutely. But it is really but, I mean, important. But briefly, though, that, is this an image problem? And is it one that is in part started by this government? You talk about us being number one and having all these opportunities. But you talk to international investors and the UK in some senses can be seen as having a massive political stability issue. Yeah, it's very, that's an important point. And, and this is in, in a critical part of this UK looking for the long term, looking um, uh, and what is important. One is stability both economically, uh, regulatory, as well as um, uh, uh, um, uh, providing and facilitating investors to be able mm. to not have changing environments on a daily basis or a weekly basis. So that when you make, particularly in private markets, because private markets 
you're typically locking up your money between five and 15 and sometimes longer years. And that means that you need to know that if you're investing today, that tomorrow, five years and 10 years time, there is no side curveballs come in that um, uh, pull away the regulatory rug or sorry, the, the investment rug, which we've seen mm. in other continental Europeans. If you go back 10 years or so in solar renewables, for example, the likes of Spain, where they changed the regulatory environment, the subsidy environment, it changed. So you made commitments for 10, 20 years, but suddenly after five or six years, that was changed and you no longer had those support from the government. And of course, that has led to um, an environment where people are very cautious to invest in those spaces um, supported by any government regimes because you're not sure if the rules change halfway down the game. Mm. Tony, I hear you in terms of, you know, not wanting mud to be slung at, uh, you know, financial services in Britain and the industry here. I am very curious to understand whether you think that Labour is going to continue these sorts of policies, you know, like this, the new platform called called Pisces. Have they committed to that? Are you, do you see anything from the Labour Party that gives you any hope that if they were to win, as the polls point to, that some of this stuff might be long term for Britain? There's no question that the Labour Party have recognised the importance of the financial services industry. It is one of the major areas of growth for this country in terms of economic growth and therefore um, welfare as well as the social goods that that can provide. There is no question they recognise that and they have been doing um, a lot of discussions around capital markets and those people involved in the in the city and financial services. The issue is whether they execute uh, and, and, and follow up those good words with execution and supporting um, what they're talking about. So if they do implement and, and follow us up, yes, there is the capability that we have and we return to a, a, an environment where, where capital is attracted and importantly, talent is attracted to the UK market because the best brains to innovate uh, and, and provide financial services need to be able to come to the London market, feel that they're awarded properly and feel that they can plan for the long term. Tony Dalwood, CEO of Gresham House, thank you very much for joining us. So that is on the economy then. Bim Afalami uh, wants to discuss that. But of course, there is the other big tentpole to policy right now, Rwanda, at the centre of the political debate in Britain over the government's asylum policy with the deportation agreements causing splits within the Conservative Party. Now, Kigali has agreed to accept failed asylum seekers from the UK in exchange for hundreds of millions of pounds in payments. Bloomberg has been looking more broadly, though, at Rwanda's economic transformation in the past 30 years and in particular the leadership of President Paul Kagame and our Africa editor, Neil Munchie, joins us now for more. Very good to have you with us, Neil. How has Paul Kagame then transformed? And it has been a transformation of Rwanda since the devastating genocide 30 years ago. I think, yeah, thanks for having me. So, um you know, you got to think about it. This was a country that was really left for dead after the genocide. And and now it's one of the most developed countries in Africa, right? Kigali, the capital, sees more conferences and major events um, from folks like the NBA, FIFA, the Commonwealth, uh, you know, fintech conferences, that kind of thing, than far bigger and richer cities like Lagos, uh, Cape Town, Nairobi. Um, and at the same time, uh, GDP per capita has risen dramatically, uh, infant mortality has fallen, maternal mortality has fallen. Um, and if you, you know, if you talk to Africans in other countries, many of them would say they wish they had the kind of development that Rwanda has had. 
You paint this uh, success story in your Business Week uh, piece, Neil. It's brilliant. How has the Rwandan government though, reacted to the discourse in the UK, particularly about Rwanda's safety and suitability for the programme? Well, I mean, this is kind of the flip side of that success story, right? That um, That's been played out uh, in the UK. I mean, this political debate is... Um, you know, Rwanda is not a liberal democracy. There's no free expression or a real political opposition, free press. Um, and there are a lot of a long line of dissidents, uh, including people who are really close to the president, uh, fought to liberate the country in the genocide, who've ended up exiled or uh, or dead with allegations from uh, governments and critics that uh, Rwanda played a role. These are allegations, obviously, that the Rwandan government uh, denies, but it's it's part of that tension that makes the country so polarizing that they've had this undeniable success uh, with development, but um, the means with which they've achieved it um, are, are, are what's controversial. Yeah, and the criticisms over the human rights record of the country just explain, though, also how Kagame has built alliances, um, you know, not just with the UK, but with, with other Western countries. I mean, there are some quite strong ties between Rwanda and other countries. Yeah, it's this kind of reputation for efficiency and uh, that they've cultivated. Um, you know, if uh, if you look at Total, the big French oil, uh, oil giant, sorry, um, they had a they have a twenty billion dollar LNG project in Mozambique that was overrun by jihadis. Originally, the Mozambique government brought in Russia's Wagner Group, and Wagner got routed by the jihadis. They called in the Rwandans, and uh, they saved the project, essentially. And and since then, the likes of the U.S. and other Western governments have sort of been not so subtly hoping for Rwanda to take on more of uh, a slice of the, let's call it the mercenary business in Africa to um, shore up unstable governments, to um, save Western interests where Western governments don't want to send troops, that kind of thing. Um, so he's been, he's turned Rwanda into, because of this really well-trained, well-respected army into a sort of essential partner for a lot of Western governments. Our Africa editor, Neil Munchie, thank you very much. It's an absolutely fascinating piece. It's on the Bloomberg Terminal, also in Business Week, but it is a deep dive into, as Neil was saying, those two sides, the two perspectives on Rwanda now, and I think absolutely vital when you talk about uh, the uh, immigration policy out of the government. I mean, the part I really hadn't uh, considered until I read Neil's piece uh, was how it ties in all sort of the nations of Africa and how Kagame, he's now head of the Commonwealth, despite the fact that Neil points out Rwanda is not a Commonwealth country mm. and its influence it has made itself in sort of the past. 30 years. Yeah. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Ruth Hussain. I'm James Walcott. And I'm Caroline Hepker. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.